You're listening to Jackpot, brought to you by Jack.org Queens. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Jackpot episode on stigma. My name is Anjana Indran, and I'm a second year in the Health Sciences program at Queen's University, and I'm the Intersectionality Director for the Jack.org Queen's Chapter. Hi, guys. My name is Maddie Hopkins. I am in my third year of Life Sciences at Queen's, and I am an Events Coordinator for Jack.org this year. Before we start, we wanted to give a content warning because we will be discussing topics of mental health, which can be very heavy. We've included resources in the description of the podcast that you can access if in need. We would like to begin with a land acknowledgement. Today, we are recording this podcast on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. We are grateful to be able to live, learn, and play on these lands. We encourage you to learn more about the lands you are currently situated on and acknowledge the significance for the Indigenous peoples who lived and continue to live upon it, and whose practices and spiritualities were tied to the land and continue to develop in relation to the territory and its other inhabitants today. Today, the podcast is going to be on stigma, and we are so pleased to have Dr. Stewart with us today. Dr. Stewart, if you would be able to provide a brief introduction of yourself, that would be amazing. Hi, well, I'm really pleased to be here with you all today. I'm a professor at Queen's University, and I'm also funded through Bell Let's Talk. I have a research chair that focuses on mental health evaluation and anti-stigma research. So my area of interest is in trying to identify how big the problem is for people who have a mental health or substance use issue on the one hand, and then on the other hand, to try to figure out what kinds of interventions might work to reduce stigma. And in this, I've been working uh, very closely with the Mental Health Commission of Canada. They have an anti-stigma program and the World Psychiatric Association, where I'm the secretary to the stigma scientific section. And in all of these areas, this is what we're really trying to figure out is how can we reduce the stigma of mental illness and substance use and make it so that people with these kinds of conditions feel socially um, interesting and inclusive lives. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. So the first question that we do have is the word stigma is often used in so many settings to discuss issues present within society. How would you best describe stigma to an undergraduate student who's trying to engage in conversations about mental health? Well, it's important to realize that the term has been used differently at different times. So in the early days, in the 1950s, it was used to indicate a mark of disgrace. So it kind of put the onus on the individual. It's a little bit like blaming the victim. But over time, we've realized that it really is an umbrella term to um, explain uh, stereotyping, which is when you put people into a broad group and you don't notice that they have specific characteristics. Linking of those stereotypes to negative traits like dangerousness um, is, is one of the most frequent ones prejudice, so developing an antipathy towards those people in the stereotype group, and then discrimination where people are marginalized. And so we know that this complex social process now is underlying the term stigma. And we know that it operates at three levels. It operates at a structural level where where organizations create social inequities through their the way they work, through their policies, through uh, laws in some countries, 
works at a public level, so how individuals interact with each other in public settings. And it acts at an individual level so that people who have mental illnesses or substance use disorders uh, internalize negative stereotypes, feel shame and embarrassed, and that can lead them to withdraw socially and it can lead them to avoid treatment and so interferes with their full recovery. So it's a complex term and it means different things depending on where you are in the social structure. <laughs> wow, that's that's really interesting, kind of the interplay of the factors and the different levels that come into play. I think, um, you know, for us as mental health advocates at, you know, an undergraduate level, we definitely aren't really having conversations about those different levels. But I think that that's um, a conversation that is to come. And I think even through this podcast, you know, I'm excited to take this back to the rest of our team and kind of break that down a little bit because it's it's fascinating. And it's definitely, as you said, very complex. It's not a straightforward term or definition that can just be applied. It really is um, a lot more than that. And so, Chatting about stigma kind of ties nicely into your position as the um, Bell Canada Chair in Mental Health and Anti-Stigma Research. And so we were hoping you could just kind of describe this role a little bit for us. So it's a research chair. So that means that I have protected time to do research. I have uh, teaching responsibilities, but not as much as if I was, you know, in a normal academic position. And basically, I've already explained, I, I, I try to figure out what the scope and magnitude is of the problem from the perspective of people who have a lived experience. Uh, we, uh, we know that most countries will do surveys, but they survey the general public to find out what their attitudes are. We're not so much interested in that anymore as we want to know what the experiences are of people who have a mental or substance use disorder, because in our minds, that's the real acid test. If we can shift that needle so that people are feeling more socially included, then we've done our job. Um, finding anti-stigma interventions that work. And then I think the third component that really the Bell funding has helped me do better and more often is knowledge exchange and translation. So today is a good example. Um, in the old days, I would have been too busy perhaps to do something like this. Um, and I do take the opportunity to talk to as many groups and individuals as I can. And so that's a real bonus, I think, for having this research chair, because I think a lot of people are still trying to come at stigma programs in a very simplistic way. Um, you know, because it's such a complex social process, one size doesn't fit all. And I, I think we have to try to get that message out to people that you have to be very targeted and thoughtful in the approach that you want to take. So if you want police officers to change their behavior, you have to do one thing. If you want a school teacher to do something different, it's a completely different program. And social marketing is not really going to do the trick. It's not going to change the way people behave. Thank you. Um, I think that leads really well into our next question, actually, how we talk about mental and this related stigma often from a societal lens. We don't think about it from other perspectives. So we were wondering, what are some other sources of mental illness related stigma that are not frequently discussed? Well, um, in the academic world, we're starting to think about the structural pieces now, which I mentioned are the organizational pieces. These haven't been you know, front and center uh, until just recently and not in every country. But the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities was enacted at different times for different countries, but it puts the onus on the social 
organization to remove barriers, just in the way that when we were trying to make it more accessible for people with physical disabilities, you know, ramps at corners and ramps and buildings, uh, to remove their barriers, we must now think about how to do that for people with mental and substance use disorders. And then the second thing I think that is starting to gain quite a bit of prominence is the self-stigma piece. And we know that you know, we're, we're not gonna change the public views very quickly. They're gonna take a long time to change, but people can learn to manage stigma in their lives and they can learn, you know, when to disclose, when not to disclose, how to um, explain um, pieces of missing time in a CV, how to uh, think about themselves as being their own worst enemies in some cases when they're erecting their own social barriers. I have a colleague who talk, talks about it as the why try effect. Why should I try to get a job? I know I'm gonna be you know, stigmatized. Why should I try for the promotion? I'm gonna be passed over because I have a mental illness. Why should I have a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Once they find out I have a mental illness, it'll be over. And so those, those kinds of um, cognitive, um, scaffolds, I guess we call them, we can do something about that as well. And so we are starting to have programs available that can tackle the self-stigma. And so, you know, if people are feeling better about themselves and they're recovering and they're finding ways to have meaningful lives that include them in their local communities, maybe worrying about public attitudes isn't the biggest thing on our mind at this point. Maybe we can move on and do some of these other things. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think the why try that really resonated with me. And I think a lot of the conversations that we have as students are very similar to that and maybe not in the same scope, you know, it's not about necessarily finding a job, but it can be with assignments and it can be with, you know, reaching out to a professor for any type of accommodation, you know, I think that there's still you know, self-stigma is definitely something that is um, prevalent in many communities and um, I don't think is being discussed enough, at least by us students. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's that's a really interesting um, component of stigma that I don't think is always considered. And I, I think it's really interesting how you mentioned that that's kind of one of the main focuses right now. And, you know, society, like, you know, organizations opinions and views that's also an issue but looking at you know the root cause and the individual themselves is just as important uh, and so i'm interested to know when looking at the trends over time how has stigma changed so over generations how how has stigma evolved and changed in this time i know you already touched on it a little bit with the the definition the complexity but if you can add anything else to that well, there's some good news and there's some bad news, <laughs> depending on, on whether you're, you know, glass half empty or half full person. We know that over time, people have improved their knowledge about mental illnesses. Uh, they, they're leaning more towards a professional or medical understanding of what a mental illness is. So, you know, in some countries, they still attribute it to the devil and to evil spirits. And so, you know, in North America, we, we've long left that, that behind. And we, are, we now know, uh, you know, we can even identify many of the symptoms of uh, disorders like depression or anxiety. And we know that there are effective treatments available for them. And, and many of us even know where to go for those treatments. Like we, we would know that a family doctor could be helpful to us. But we've also, uh, through the media, been spoon-fed a, a, a diet of people with mental illness are dangerous. And we've got a lot of very vivid movies that are 
consolidated in our minds when we see news footage of people who are running amok with guns or you know creating you know violence and so i don't think that the the idea that people could be dangerous has dissolved at the social level and that's the key reason why people don't want to get close to those with a mental illness they think that they're dangerous and rather than take a risk they will maintain social distance. So in Canada, our knowledge and even our attitudes have improved over time quite a bit. And we're quite a bit more willing to talk about mental illnesses now. But we're still reticent to um, have somebody in our family, like uh, as a, a marry into a family. We're still uncomfortable hiring a lawyer. And most of us would not hire a babysitter, for example, who, who had a mental illness. So we've come a long way in terms of the knowledge, the attitude piece. But now what we're learning is we've got to focus on the behavioral piece. Shifting knowledge, is, knowledge and attitudes isn't going to be enough. We need to change behaviors. And we need to disabuse people of the idea that people with mental illnesses are a public risk. They're not. Mostly they're victims of violence because they're put in, you know, there's a downward drift for those who are seriously ill and they're in the worst parts of any city and they're at risk. They don't have stable housing. They, you know, they don't have jobs. They don't have any of the things that maybe the rest of us take for granted. So we have to start thinking about how we're going to change behaviors, change policies, change rules to make sure that people with mostly the very serious illnesses have the kinds of financial and social and, and treatment supports that they need to maintain a full recovery. That's, yeah, you brought up some really, really interesting points there. And I think when you started talking about media and the discussion of danger associated with mental illness, that kind of um, brought up some other thoughts about how like the media portrayal of mental illness, I feel like it's for all ages, not only adults who are consuming, you know, news that might be showing that narrative, but also young adults and youth who are even just watching TV, you know, like I think of shows that portray individuals with, for example, um, OCD or a mood, mood disorder, it can be incredibly harmful and not at all representative of the mental illness. And, um, so that that also just kind of made me think of how, you know, the media portrayal is definitely another area that is incredibly problematic in many ways and to many ages, which kind of, you know, when you're shown that at a young age, it can um, mm -hmm. grow, it can continue throughout your life. And then when it's also shown in the news as an adult. Um, so that's that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Uh, mm -hmm. But looking at the more positive side of our increased knowledge and our increased discussion, we were interested to know if by having more conversations about stigma, are we actively engaging in anti-stigma efforts? I think so, because I think when something is uh, stigmatized, it's taboo and people won't talk about it. And I think, you know, by talking about it, we're sharing uh, our experiences, we're sharing knowledge. And I think over time, uh, the long run time, uh, it will improve the way in which we think about mental illnesses. It isn't a magic bullet, as I mentioned at the outset, because it's such a complex process. It, we don't have magic bullets. We've just got to chip away and think about what we would have to do to change the way Hollywood portrays people in movies. I mean, it's almost an insurmountable task. 
So what, yeah, so we, we have to have, uh, you know, in, in some ways, the public's notions may drive the movie industry because they'll buy tickets or they won't buy tickets. So maybe once we get them to understand that this is, you know, not very nice and not accurate, maybe they will lose their appetite for these kinds of things. But I think that will take a long, long time to come. Um, I know that um, even children as young as kindergarten already have preconceived notions of what it's like to be mentally ill and they're not positive. And they get it from their cartoons. I mean, you think of the Disney cartoons, uh, just, you know, so many of the Disney cartoons include characters that are acting in very disorganized ways. They don't call it mental illness per se, but they're setting up the stage for later on when, when you know, these children grow older over time to begin to have that understanding. So, you know, it, it really is a, a huge task. The nice thing is, though, that everybody can do something to make a difference. Um, you know, sometimes small things add up and accumulate. And so we shouldn't get discouraged and think, oh, we can't change Hollywood. Uh, but we can use news people as allies in the fight against stigma. We've done that successfully in the past. In Canada, we have um, guidelines that the media uh, developed with the support of the Mental Health Commission. It's called Mindset. And it, it tells them how to think about and talk about different illnesses and what the do's and don'ts are of reporting on people with these illnesses, the importance of getting uh, information from professionals, the importance of not guessing at a diagnosis, these kinds of things. And we have researchers in Montreal that have been tracking these uh, reports over time, and they're noticing a positive change. Um, you know, less derogatory language, less expectations that they're going to be dangerous, um, more, uh, more talk about recovery and more talk about treatments that are available. Uh, also looking at systemic problems like lack of funding, which is a good thing because, you know, the system does need to be better funded. So things are slowly changing for the better. And so I think, you know, we, we should be optimistic that we can all do something in our various realms like you're doing in your realm today. So. <laughs> I think your points there are very valuable because even during the COVID pandemic, a lot of people had this attitude of what can I do? You know, it's everyone's at home. I know people are struggling. What can I do for my family and friends? How can I reach out? And I think that's where a lot of people actually came to realize the importance of mental health and the little actions, whether it's reaching out to a friend or having a little jacked out org event or just... Yeah spreading like love within the community and support within the community and how like how that can have such a big implication on someone else's life even if it feels like very small to you it can have a big implication and I think that just goes in to show um how our knowledge is increasing but as you did mention um these movie portrayals and media uh, portrayals whether it's through social media as well not just um tv shows and uh, movies um can be incredibly harmful um, especially when you are stuck at home and this is what you see on a constant basis. There is not, maybe your parents or um, your siblings don't know too much about mental health to correct that information or you don't know too much yourself about it to correct what you're seeing or people often don't go out of their way to see if what they're seeing is actually true. They just accept it sometimes for, mm -hmm. um, for being the truth, I guess. And so that kind of leads into our next question about transformative education. So in your education, 
sorry, in your research, you had discussed the importance of education towards reducing stigma in several settings. How does transformative education play a key role in reducing familial and personal stigma? So I guess um, what we should think about first is what constitutes transformative education. And what we found in our work is that anything that brings people together socially in social contact in positive ways where the person who has a mental illness can act as a, a role model for recovery and can answer questions and can hold a discussion with smaller groups of people. We, you know, a, a, a theater full of 500 kids, this isn't gonna work. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that it can really change the way people think about things. And what we have found is that we wanna get into schools and we want to get to the younger children, but there are barriers to doing that. School boards in Canada and across the world are reticent to have this part of their structure, their ongoing curriculum, because they worry about what parents will do and what parents will say. And some parents don't like the idea that someone with a mental illness could be led into a classroom to talk about mental illness with their children. It should be you know, something that they do or they have very fixed views about you know, people with mental illnesses, they don't want the kids coming in contact with them. So we've had good luck with very progressive teachers, but what we need to do is, is change that at the school level. And so, you know, when somebody is able to model recovery, first of all, most people don't know what, what recovery is in the context of mental illness. And it's not a, a lack of symptoms, it's managing symptoms and leading a meaning, meaningful life. Um, and then you have someone in front of you that can say, you know, at one point in my life, I was a street person in Vancouver, and now I have a job and a wife and kids. And I do these speaking engagements because I want you to understand, you know, what it's like to be able to get your life back together and that it's possible. Kids will ask all kinds of really interesting questions. It really engages them. And I think that that's what we think of as transformative learning. We can do the same thing with medical students, with um professional students, it's that, that spark of social contact that is, um, you know, demonstrating recovery is, is not only possible, but probable, and uh, allowing people a safe space to ask questions and discuss things. Um, that's what we need. Um, there was a program at U of T where they paired a number of, I think it was medical students, maybe residents, but medical students with people who had lived experience and they were supposed to get together for, for the, the year. And the initial meetings that they had, they were in groups, they would, maybe there was in total, maybe 12 or 15 of them would be uh, at school in a classroom and the discussions was, were very halted and um, superficial. By the end of the year, they were having dinners at each other's homes and um, really, you know, understanding that socializing is not difficult to do and it's quite, you know, important and it's rewarding. And so that social contact during the course of that year was transformative for those students. Um, that's that's fascinating. And I think that so your whole discussion there about transformative education and having a role model and someone to, you know, bounce questions off of and having a safe space that kind of brings me back to our members meetings that we have with jack.org. And so we'll frequently have students who are in recovery, as you described, you know, mm -hmm. might still have symptoms, but are managing them and living a meaningful life. 
Um, and so they'll come and they'll talk about their experience with their mental illness and then they'll explain, um, you know, how they're doing now. And, you know, they'll answer any question that is asked mm -hmm. and it's an incredibly safe space and there's access to the peer support center. And, um, you know, everybody knows that it's a confidential space and just participating in a few of these meetings since starting my undergraduate degree, my entire view of mental health and mental illness has changed. And I've always been a very open person. I've, I've never judged or had any, well, I mean, I've had preconceived ideas just from, you know, uh, outlets that we've discussed, but um, you know, even just having these conversations, my knowledge has grown so much and so has my comfort. And um, I think, you know, just my perception of mental health in general. And so I wish that I had had experiences like that when I was younger, because I think that, you know, from a young age, being able to have those conversations and ask those questions would have been incredibly powerful and probably would have helped uh, mm -hmm. prevent some of the preconceived ideas that I did have before joining this club. And yeah. so yeah, they would have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so and I, I don't know why I've never really thought. I mean, I've just always been grateful that I'm having the opportunity now, but there isn't. I mean, as you discussed, there are reasons why um, barriers to having individuals um, come into to those settings. But at the same time, um, in my opinion, the 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 pros far outweigh the cons in that in that case. And I think having those discussions at a younger age would just be, you know, in, incredibly powerful. And so I hope I hope that that's something that is to come or that is is happening in some places and will continue to grow because it's definitely something that has changed my life. And yeah, transformative education is definitely uh, an incredibly powerful tool. Mm -hmm. um, and so switching gears a little bit in in your research um, or in one of your publications, sorry, you had mentioned that there's a gap in current research considering the personal experiences of individuals with mental illnesses who are stigmatized. And so why is this an important area of research? I think it's, well, as I, I sort of suggested earlier, it, it is an acid test. If we're going to be mounting large national programs that are supposed to reduce stigma, we wanna hear from the people who are on the front lines of experiencing stigma, whether it's making a difference or not. And if it's not, why are we wasting our time and money doing that stuff if it's not helping them? And so we, we have to get right down to understanding what their experiences are, where are they experiencing the most stigma? Where is it most hurtful? And that way we can target programs. So for example, if um, everybody thinks that stable housing is the thing, which is really important, but people with uh, lived experience are saying, it's hardest in my family and it's most hurtful in my family and friends, then maybe you know we can think about shifting some of our, our activities and energy to helping people manage their families, <laughs> their family members and their friends. And, you know, I think one of the things that happens when people become ill is they don't know what to expect. And they're, they're, they're ill, they're vulnerable, they're usually young because most illnesses start before the age of 20. And they're not expecting to have to fend off uh, the loss of friendships or derogatory and hurtful comments made by family members, snap out of it. You know, you're, you're just, you're malingering. You could, get, you could snap out of it if you wanted to um, when they know that they're ill. And so, um, you know, having 
you know, being forewarned about this kind of thing can help people build strategies for when it's happening and not be so utterly overwhelmed and shocked because they didn't see it coming and they didn't expect it. And so, you know, helping people understand expectations of stigma, um, you know, what, what happens in workplaces? Well, well, you know, workplaces, most of them are, are not entirely supportive of people with mental illnesses. So that means you have to think very carefully about disclosing. To disclose, you, you have to disclose to get accommodations. But if you have a supervisor that you think is not going to be supportive, um, maybe you figure out a different way around that. Maybe disclosure isn't the best thing that you could do. And so, you know, just, just having people think their way through and having those management strategies at their disposal. We have a group of people that we bring together, um, and it's called Cooking Connections. And we're working with a lot of people in the community here, um, uh, cooking literacy organizations, mental health organizations. And what we do is we bring people who are, seriously ill, but more importantly, seriously isolated. Um, the, you know, their, their symptoms are stable. We put them in a room with a dietitian and a, somebody who, who cooks for a living and they do recipes, like some starting simple. Uh, and then they sit down at a big table and they eat as a group. And during the dinner, uh, when, when they're, it's a lunch usually, when they're eating, one of my uh, team will come in and we have a a course on overcoming stigma, it's an eight session course, and it'll talk about different aspects of stigma and what you can do and what, you know, how do you overcome it? What are you doing? And so we get tips and traps out of the people around the table. By the end of the session, they indicate that they've transformed themselves, that their self-stigma is something that they didn't know they had. Now they see it for what it is and they have control over it. They make a circle of friends. So what ended up happening after our first group was these people who were afraid to come, you know, to the course, they still get together for potluck. Uh, this has been like two years. So they, they went in there with no friends and they came out with 12 or 13 friends. So we know that these kinds of things are important to changing the way that people experience their illness and how they, they learn to manage, you know, things. How do you manage a doctor's appointment when the doctor will We'll talk to you about some of this stuff. Well, you know, there are people around the table have had that experience and they figured out ways to manage it. So the personal experience, I think, has got to be at the center of everything. Wow, that was that that's fascinating. And it's beautiful to hear that, you know, hearing hearing something like that and hearing that that work is being done and that those relationships are being made, you know, it's it, it that by taking that step, the lives of those 12 or 13 people that you mentioned have changed for the rest of their lives, you know? Um, and so by, you know, understanding that and learning from that and implementing that in our own lives in whatever ways that we can, you know, I think really big change can come from that. And so, like you said, individual experience is definitely, uh, very important, especially for, um, developing anti-stigma efforts. And so for our audience listening today, could you, in addition to transformative um, education and the few that you just mentioned in your response, what are some other examples of anti-stigma efforts that are kind of still being, you know, developed or implemented into the community? Well, one area that um, the, the literature suggests is doesn't work is called protest. So if you, you know, protest 
anything, people will get their backs up and they push back. So if you protest the words that reporters use in their articles, they scream censorship and, and you're on their, you know, the bottom of their list. But there is one area where protest works and I've been involved in some of it and it's at the legal and organizational level. If you've been treated inappropriately by your organization, if you've lost your job or, uh, you know, there's been a culture of stigma that has, you know, not supported you or allowed you to have the right accommodations. There are lawyers now that are developing class action suits against these organizations. And so this is a form of legal protest. And researchers like myself sometimes get invited to give expert opinions about this, that, or the other thing related to the particular case. And, um, and that can make it a, di a big difference because it can make an organization change its behaviors and that affects everybody within that organization. So you're using you know, the experiences of a small group of people. In one case, it was um, one person who was challenging an organization and, um, and you know, it does change the organization's behavior. So protest when used judiciously this way, I think is really powerful because we wanna get at that, those structural pieces that uh, are the scaffolding. I mean, we're, we're born into a society and the society tells us how to think about mental illness. So unless we change those structures, we're just gonna keep creating generations of people who are stigmatizing. So protest works really well, I think. Advocacy is another thing that works. I mean, we can be involved with advocacy to decision makers, to funders, and it doesn't work overnight. But if we have our, you know, our research facts together, for example, this is a big problem. It's bigger than, you know, it's the mental illnesses and substance use disorders are the number, if you put them together, are the number one cause of disability worldwide. So this is you know, more important than any other illness and they're not being funded properly. So we can use research as an advocacy tool. And so not only can we say this is a big problem and needs to be addressed, we can say, and here are some things you can do to, to address the problem because we've done research on these interventions and we know they work. And, um, and so you know, the advocacy for this kind of social change is something that, we can work on and large international organizations like World Health and World Psychiatric Association, they, they see the value of that as one strategy amongst a whole toolbox and they are promoting these kinds of advocacy efforts as well. I think it's really fascinating that you pointed out legal protest as a viable option. I had never considered that, but it makes so much sense now that having these institutional changes can lead to less people or more people being more conscious of what they're saying and how they're going about their everyday lives instead of stigmatizing, they're more aware now. And that can have a long-term influence on uh, not just the organization, but the people who work there, the employers and so forth. Um, yeah. And in relation to what you had mentioned about advocacy, we were also thinking about anti-stigma efforts on smaller scales, like clubs like Jack.org on campus and what we could do to implement advocacy and um, reducing stigma on campus in the school setting. And we were wondering if you had any ideas regarding that as well. Yeah, so, um, so the contact-based approaches really work well and they're, they're robust and resilient. So thinking about how to do contact-based education in different ways, like I, I explained the one that U of T did by pairing 
groups of students. Sometimes um, professors will let uh, their students um, pair with another person who has a disability and, uh, you know, substance or mental health for uh, to work on a, something together cooperatively, like a poster or something like that. And other times it's people coming into the classroom and talking. So those kinds of things can be um, well organized at a student level because students are interested in this. And many students experience depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and more so since the pandemic. And uh, I can think it gives them a better touch point now to understand what it's like to have, you know, anxiety and not be able to do things because of it. So that is certainly something that can be done. I think the other thing that's really important uh, that we haven't really touched on yet is that peer support programs and peer support people are really important. They're, they, they've walked the walk and they can help people uh, manage an illness, manage a situation, provide uh, unconditional positive regard and support for them and um, help them along their recovery journey. And so, you know, peer support training can be uh, achieved in most university and post-secondary settings because there are these programs available. But I also think that there's possibilities for peer support uh, training outside of the university setting so that you could import some of this knowledge and, and expertise. Um, there are programs that are called gatekeeper programs that help people understand when a colleague is, is uh, suffering, you know, what are, what are some of the social and behavioral cues that someone might give off in a post-secondary setting is that they might not be socializing as much as they used to. You might notice that they're not seeing their friends, that in, you know, in a residence setting, that they're staying in the rooms by themselves. Um, you might notice that they're usually an A student and they're getting Cs all of a sudden. Uh, you know, they're becoming uncommunicative. So what, what can you do to be a gatekeeper for that person in their life is you can open a conversation with them. You can learn how to have that conversation. You can figure out what supports and services are available in your university or in your post-secondary organization. Typically, they're very hard to sort out. And there's no single roadmap that makes it easy to find these things. Um, as much as students want that, and they don't seem to be able to come up with it in, in many cases. And you know, just knowing how to get somebody connected with the right supports, and that can make a difference. And if everybody, every student knows how to do that, Think of the difference that could make at a university or post-secondary, you know, college level. And think about it if the professors knew how to do it too, uh, and the faculty members and all the staff. You know, you know, it would be quite a supportive and helpful environment for people. And it would also be something that might be a, a preemptive. You know, getting at people before they're too far down the path, you know, the road to being becoming really ill and helping them figure out how to manage, um, how to help young men not drink so much on campuses because they are not only risking themselves, but they're a risk to the young women around them as well. Um, and so, you know, thinking about ways that you can educate uh, university students and post-secondary students as to how they can make a difference one friend or one colleague at a time so that they're comfortable and they feel they're confident in their skill set and that will carry them through their whole life thank you so much for that response i think 
I think students often kind of hear, you know, the words mental health advocacy or something along those lines and think that it takes like really big actions to be someone who's making a difference or someone who's, you know, really assisting in this movement to, you know, reduce stigma and to, um, you know, make mental health a more talked about topic and no different than physical health. Um, but the truth is it can, it honestly just takes, you know, helping a friend with find the right resource or, you know, just listening to just being there, you know, it's, it can be not, I don't want to say as simple as that, but it doesn't take these huge measures or these huge actions to make a difference. And we can all, each and every one of us contribute to this in our own ways. And so whether that's, you know, getting to know the resources that are available at Queens or chatting with a friend, checking in with them frequently, you know, there's lots of ways that we can go about doing this. And I think having a reminder like that from someone as, you know, knowledgeable and with all the research that you've done, I think it's incredibly powerful hearing that and getting that reminder that, you know, those, those small steps are actually quite large in the big picture. Um, and so just kind of wrapping this up, I think we both on behalf of Jack.org, Dr. Stewart, it has been an incredible pleasure to talk with you today. And I think there are many key takeaways. I'm going to have to listen to this podcast again and make some notes because this conversation has been um, inc incredible. It's incredibly inspiring. And I'm so grateful that we were able to sit and have this conversation with you today. And I'm also incredibly grateful for the work that you are doing and the research that you are doing and how it is impacting all of our lives. Lives. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us today. You're quite welcome. I hope this is inspiring to your colleagues and that you'll all come with a plan to do something. It absolutely is. Thank you. You're quite thank welcome. You so much.